chapter 18, verses 18 through 27, and then in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 44. Lord's Day 44 takes up the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, and then expands on that and also summarizes the whole matter of why we want the law of God preached to us. Luke 18, we read of the rich young ruler coming to Jesus. Luke 18, at verse 18, we hear the word of the Lord. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept for my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Well, in the scripture reading there, if you take the forms and prayers book in hand, we'll turn to page 250, page 250. Page 250, Lord's Day 44, as we look at the summary of God's Word by way of this teaching tool of the Catechism, it asks in question 113, what is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment where it says you shall not covet? And the answer is that not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin And delight in all righteousness. And then question 114 says, But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? And the answer is no. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. And finally, it's asked, Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? Answer, first, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, 
perfection. Let's bow before the Lord and ask for his mercies. O Lord, our God, we're thankful to have heard your law and to come to this 10th commandment tonight. We pray, and as we think on it and the purpose of your law, that you would direct our thoughts, that your law would do its work within us, and that we would see our Savior more and more. Father, we thank you for your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. O congregation of Christ, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, is both like and unlike the previous nine commandments. It's first of all like the previous nine because it's a commandment given by God to keep us from going back into slavery. God brings his people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and in liberty now, he says, walk in this law and stay free. And the 10th commandment is about that. If you, if you want to stay free, you shall not covet. To covet is to have an inordinate or illegitimate desire for what's not yours, to set your desire upon what somebody else has. It's related to envy and jealousy and so forth. And God says if you, if you live in covetousness, then you become a slave again. God warns us against it. The gospel solution to coveting is contentment. Before God's face, recognize that what we have has come from God's hand. And therefore, what we have in our lives is the best thing for us right now. The spouse we have or don't have is the right one for us now. The house we have, it's the right one for us. The job we have, whatever our gifts and abilities, it's the right one at this moment in our life. Whatever God has given to me today is the right thing for me today. That's contentment, to trust the hand of the Lord's providence. Freedom from covetousness comes by learning to be content in every situation. And that, remember where the Apostle Paul said, in that context of contentment, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so we stay free as we walk in contentment. But this commandment, though it's like the previous nine commandments, it's also different. And it's different in this way, that the previous commandments seem to speak in a way to the outward action, right? Not to kill not to steal, not to lie. But the 10th commandment goes right for the heart. It goes for the intention. It goes for the desire. It goes for the thoughts. And that's what the catechism focuses on here as it finishes the study of the law and comes to this 10th commandment. The 10th commandment has been called the key to the law because it shows us that every commandment really seeks our hearts. Or someone has said that the law of God and the Tenth Commandment is sort of like a, a funnel or an upside-down pyramid. It starts quite bold and broad with the commandment, no other gods before me. But as you come to the Tenth Commandment, it comes to a sharp point that presses down into the interior of our being to our very thought life. And so tonight we want to think about this law, a law that the Apostle Paul suggests in Romans 7 may have been a peculiar instrument in God's hand to humble him. I would not have known what, known what coveting was if the law had said you shall not covet. This law has an important place. Let's look tonight at the Tenth Commandment and the place of God's laws. We see, first of all, God's total claim in this commandment. And then we see the small beginning that we have in this new obedience. And then we look at our glorious destiny, which is perfection. So those three points, God's total claim, the small beginning, and our glorious destiny. Well, in Luke 18, this 
A young man comes to Jesus and he asks that great question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's nothing greater than eternal life. How, how may I receive this from God? How may I inherit it? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Probably encouraging the man both to consider himself, he's not good, and to consider that Jesus is God. But then he tells him, you know the commandments. And he sets them before him. Don't commit adultery, no murder, no steal, don't bear false witness, honor father and mother. And the young man responds immediately, yes, I've, I've done those, I'm doing those. Many people take him as, as being quite self-righteous here in the sense that to say that I've done these, he, he's being self-righteous. But he may just mean it covenantally. I've, I've been walking in this law. As all Christians should hopefully say, I'm trying, I'm striving to keep covenant with God and to be faithful to him. Yes, I've been doing that since my youth. But there was at least one kind of self-righteousness in this man in that he had a very minimalistic understanding of the law. He had focused upon the exterior and the outward actions, but Jesus knew that his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. And Jesus says, you lack one thing, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. And at that, this man is uncovered and exposed because suddenly he's very sorrowful. It's in his mind the worst thing he could have ever heard. Walking the commandments, that was fine. I've been doing that. But now to give up everything? You see, Jesus Christ exposes this man. And he brings this man to see, or at least for us to see, that this man's heart was not loving God completely. And that his works were exterior but not interior. You know, as we think about this young man, we recognize in our own lives we have this habit of compiling lists that if we keep these things and check them off, then we consider ourselves to be godly. Maybe some of you know the name of G.I. Williamson. He tells the story of having preached in a, or served a church early on in his ministry that there was a church that, that focused on exteriors upon a particular list. If you abstain from these things, then you're considered holy or godly. And the main thing was alcohol. As long as you don't drink any alcohol, you're godly. You see, but we can all do that. We can all make a list of whatever it might be. Christ comes to us in the 10th commandment doing the same thing he, he does to the, the rich young ruler here. Christ comes with the 10th commandment and says, I want the interior. What's your heart? He breaks in upon us. What's on the inside? I want your desires. It's too easy just to rat off the commandments in an exterior way and say, well, I haven't murdered today. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't lied to anyone. And to think we're doing pretty good. But then what about coveting? What about any desire for anything that God has forbidden you? What about that? What about an angry thought? What about a lustful thought? What about a greedy thought? The Tenth Commandment reminds us that God wants it all. He wants everything about us. That answer is, is a very absolute answer, isn't it? What's God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? That not even the slightest desire, not the slightest thought, contrary to any one of God's commandments, should ever arise in our hearts. Wow. That's... That's quite a standard. 
Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. That's an enormous standard. That's a standard of perfection. You shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We sometimes make peace with, with internal thoughts. So I didn't do it, I just thought it. I didn't say it, I just imagined it. And we begin to think that maybe God's at peace with these things. But God's never at peace with any sin. We may get used to these things. In fact, there may be thoughts and patterns in our internal, our desires and thought life that we've gotten used to, but God has never gotten used to them. His law really demands everything of us. We're to hate sin, not to play with it, not to cuddle it, not to be sympathetic towards it, not to think that we have a few favorite ones that God's become okay with, Our secret sins are exposed. No matter how private or how neatly dressed, they don't measure up to God's standard. Man's standard says, I'll hate every sin that bothers me. We were looking in the membership class this morning at the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. It's always so amazing to think about that, isn't it? The difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is regret, right? It's grieving the offenses that have offended me, that have hurt me, that have embarrassed me. But godly sorrow is grieving sin for God's sake. I've sinned against him. And God says, it's not okay with me if you abstain from sin on the outside but love it on the inside. No army captain would be glad to have a soldier who seems to wear the uniform and fight on his side if he's inwardly carrying on a love affair with with the enemy. Wouldn't be helpful. Wouldn't be safe. Jesus spoke of the Pharisees who, who were like dishes washed on the outside but filthy on the inside. Imagine if maybe your soup bowls from a Sunday dinner you took to the kitchen sink and scrubbed the outside, gleaming white, but you left all that soup to dry and be crusty on there on the inside. Or Jesus said they're like whitewashed sepulchers. They're they're tombs where, where the stones, when I whitewash, it's clean. Maybe a brand new tombstone, but inside dead bones. The Lord God's never happy simply with the outside. Jesus said, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What's it mean to hate sin? doesn't just mean that I try to avoid it, but it means that I despise it, that I loathe it, that I want no part of it, that I won't find joy or pleasure even in imagining it, and then that I should, with all my heart, delight in all righteousness. The psalmist says, make me walk in paths of your commands, for I delight in it, Psalm 119, 35. There's a difference between outwardly trying to walk in the commands and inwardly taking pleasure in the commands. There's a difference between doing what God says and enjoying the splendor of his holiness. Most employers would be happy if employees just did what they were told on the outside, right? But our Father in heaven is not satisfied. There's a difference between loving his righteousness and tolerating it. This is a hard thing, isn't it, to teach, a hard thing for parents maybe to instruct their children about. But we know it. 
because parents sometimes pick up on the sighs that their children give or the rolling eyes or the complaint when they go to do what they've been told, but they don't do it with the right attitude. We have to start, don't we, thinking about our attitudes, what's on the inside. The law requires everything of us. As young people think about their lifelong vocation and their calling, they have to think about the future. How can I glorify God, not just what pleases me, what will please Him? As adults think about marriage, it's not just who will please me, but with whom may I serve God's kingdom for His pleasure? To delight in the Lord's righteousness. Now we may be tempted to lighten up this great standard that's revealed here and explained in the Catechism. I think that's just a little too tough. But we have to remember, this is the standard by which Jesus Christ was judged on the cross. Jesus Christ died, yes, even for our size. Jesus Christ died for our secret sins in the heart. Jesus Christ suffered hell for our lack of joy in God's commandments. But suffer he did. And Jesus Christ did that with heartfelt delight in his Father. Jesus Christ kept the law of God and fulfilled his assignment with his whole heart. And Jesus Christ loved us, truly, through and through. And so, we can move on tonight from that requirement, the absolute demand of God to consider the small beginning. Let's do that as we look at this truth summarized in question and answer 114, it says, but, but can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? Now the catechism is summarizing all, all the, the Ten Commandments that we've been studying, and it says, now, can we keep these perfectly? And the catechism gives two answers. The first one's pretty simple. No. No, we can't keep them perfectly. Some have suggested that we could. Roman Catholic Church has taught that there's some people who do more good works than they even need to, and now there's a, a treasury of merit. And if you need some merit, the saints can give you some of theirs. Others have taught a doctrine of perfectionism, that you can come to a place in your spiritual growth where you commit no sins willingly or knowingly. The story is told to a pastor who stood in the pulpit and told his congregation, well, well, congregation, this has, has been a sinless year for me. A sinless year. 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, Romans 7 reveals the struggle even after coming to Christ. Paul speaks about that, doing things we don't want to do, not doing the things we do want to do. And maybe... If we think on this, it all seems pretty pointless then because at the beginning of the catechism, remember, in Lord's Day 2, the question had been asked, after we heard what the law of God requires, perfect love for God and love for neighbor, can you live up to this? Can you keep all of this perfectly? And the catechism said at the beginning, no, I am prone to hate God and my neighbor, period. And now since Lord's Day 2, we've studied this glorious doctrine of Christ that, that the Son of God came, He suffered, He died, He poured out His Spirit upon us. And now we're back to the question, can you keep these commandments perfectly? And when we hear no again, you might say, oh, this is pretty pointless then, being a Christian. Even the holiest of men have only a small beginning of this obedience, the Catechism says. Talking about the heroes of the faith, Hebrews 11. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and 
Sarah and Rebecca and so forth. Just a small beginning. Moses, just a small beginning in this, in this obedience. The saints of the New Testament, Peter and Paul and whoever it might be, just, just getting started. And right when we're about to say, well, this is pointless and throw up our arms, the catechism says, nevertheless, nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. Can you keep it perfectly? No. But, but, there is a beginning. A small beginning, but a real beginning in the life of the believer. You see, in Romans 7, Paul says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ gave his life for us. And he purchased us a new heart and the principle of new obedience. And so Paul says in Romans 7, In my inner being, in my inner man, I delight in God's law. I don't find myself always doing it. But in my interior, I have a new principle of life. I have a new heart. The cry of the believing psalmist sounds the same. Psalm 119, 127, and 128. I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. And because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. It's a new beginning. It's a real beginning. It's a radical beginning. It's a decisive break from sin because we are a new creation in Christ. And so Lord's Day 2 and Lord's Day 44 are worlds apart, aren't they? The unregenerate heart who can't possibly keep the law and the regenerate heart who has but a small beginning of new obedience, but a real beginning, a glorious, real beginning. We've been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And he covers over our sin. And he purifies our works to present them to the Father. And where we fail, he grants us forgiveness and grace to rise again and to live for God. And so we have a real beginning. A small beginning, but a true beginning. And before that truth, then we are all humbled together, aren't we? Under God's mighty hand. Because no one has anything to boast of. No one has anything to boast of. Whether we've been 50 years in the faith or just converted yesterday, whether Abraham on his deathbed or the thief on the cross, everyone's really just getting started in terms of God's standard. So one of my seminary professors put it, you know, God has set the high jump bar at 1,000 feet, and one of us jumps 5 inches, one of us jumps 7 inches, one of us jumps 10 inches. But we're all just getting started. We have nothing to boast of. Nothing to stick our nose in the air about. No reason to look down at another. We are all beggars of grace together. Just beginning to learn what it is to be perfect. And so that brings us finally tonight to think of that certain goal. That there is a glorious goal. The disciples were dismayed when Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Who then can be saved? It's impossible. Jesus says, yes. 
but not for God. God is a God who saves. God is in the process of saving. God gives to people a new heart. And God continues to work upon them their whole life long. And so the Catechism asks that good question that we have to ask. Do we, do we still need the law if we've come to Christ now? Or can we just say, you know, as it said sometimes, you know, we're not under law anymore. So maybe we don't need to focus on this. We're not under law anymore. Well, our parents ask the question, since no one in his life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? Why does God want them preached so strictly if we can't do it perfectly anyway? And again, two answers. The first one is that so all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and so more and more seek Christ. The law is a great tool, isn't it, to make us know our need of Christ and cause us to appreciate Christ. Sometimes we think that as Christians we get beyond this whole thing of hearing about sin and about redemption again. Right? We, we think we grow out of that. We got past that. I, I confessed my sin long ago. I put my trust in Jesus long ago. But it's not like that, is it? Because, because our ongoing relationship of, with Christ is one of continued dependence, of, as Jesus taught us, continual asking for God to forgive our debts. Not that we're not forgiven, but that we are always to live the life of grace. That we're always to know our need. That we're always to know that we live by the Lord's mercies. That we are sinners. We remain sinners. And we need grace. Romans 3 verse 20 says that by the law is the knowledge of sin. In Romans 7, as I mentioned earlier, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. And then he goes on to say, I wouldn't have known what covetousness was if the law had said you shall not covet. The reality is without the preaching of the law, we all begin to think that we're doing all right. That maybe I don't need Christ so greatly. But I tell you what, the Lord's Supper never tastes so good as when we are broken. When we're broken. Once in a while I find myself sinning in some way that's directly related to the sermon I'm about to preach, often like on a Saturday. I think, why, why is this temptation so strong? Or why am I falling into this sin right now? I'm supposed to preach tomorrow about this. And then I always kind of rejoice because there's no greater joy in preaching than when I know that I need the grace that's being proclaimed. Someone wrote long ago that no preacher ought to preach a sermon to the congregation. He's preaching to himself. That's well, not always easy. Sometimes you get busy writing sermons. You forget to apply it to yourself in the way you should to ponder it. And what does that mean in my life? But it's a joy to preach when you're fully aware, at least in a big way aware, of, of your need. But you know, it's the same for every believer. There's no joy in telling somebody the good news of the gospel. If it's just perfunctory, I'm supposed to share the faith, I'm supposed to witness, okay, here you need, you need. But if you are living by grace, you walk out the door in the morning rejoicing and smiling, praise the Lord, grace in Christ, that's what I need, then you want to speak to others about it. Same thing in worship. There's no joy in singing these songs about the Savior. 
If we think, you know, I've been there, I've done that, I've confessed my sin, I got saved a long time ago, that kind of thought. But if you come to church saying, I, I need to be saved today, not in the sense that we keep losing salvation, but the sense that I need grace always, I, I live by God's grace alone, then these are delightful songs to sing of the glories of our Savior and what he's done for us. You get the point. We never outgrow the preaching of God's law. We need to be broken again and again. Our hearts rise up in pride. They begin to shield themselves of all these layers of self-righteousness. And we need the law to break and shatter and bring us low. We need a good look in the mirror. And that's what the law is. The mother says to her child who says, I already combed my hair. Now go look in the mirror. And then you'll see But the law isn't just a mirror. We also describe it as a portrait. It's not just that we need to know our sin more and more to seek forgiveness and righteousness in Christ. But we need the law also as a portrait so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to be renewed after God's image. The law is a mirror to show us that we aren't there yet, not by a long stretch. And the law is a portrait to say this is where we're going. We will be made like God, for we shall see him as he is. And so we say, Lord, I see the beauty of your holiness. I, I see your splendor. Make me your son. Make me your daughter to look like you. Our family pulled out a Norman Rockwell or a book about him, the painter, and somebody pulled out, showed the picture of Norman Rockwell's self-portrait. It's a rather curious picture. It's, it's Norman Rockwell's self-portrait of him painting his self-portrait. So it shows his back, shows him looking into a mirror, then shows his face in the mirror, and it shows the portrait that he's painting with him on there. But someone also noticed on the side of his canvas he had paper clipped on there or taped on there the self-portraits of famous painters of Picasso or Rembrandt or whoever and as if these were examples to him in his painting of his self-portrait well God's sort of put the brush in our hand right we have a role in sanctification it's the spirit's work in us but it's also work we cooperate with as we fight against sin and strive for righteousness and pray to be conformed but the portrait we're looking at, the example to us, is not some famous painter, but it's the Lord God. As we come to his word, we see the beauty of his holiness. We see the, the glory of his righteousness. We see what a kind father we have, what a truthful father, what a wonderful father. And we're saying, God, make me again like you so I can enjoy your fellowship and bask in your delights for all eternity. And that's where we're going. And that's why we don't give up. It's not a fool's errand, is it? Because Jesus Christ is that image of the Father. The perfect, radiant image of the Father. And we are united to Jesus Christ. We have been, Ephesians 1, chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before God created the world, he had predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's guaranteed. One day, 
we will be like our God. So towards that goal, we pray and we strive and we reach and we look forward when at last we won't need the law to expose our sin anymore. and We won't have to daily repent and we won't have to pray for the grace of being renewed. But we will have come by the rich grace of God in Christ Jesus to glory. To glory. What a hope for God's people. What a calling we have. May we embrace it. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for our Lord Jesus Christ who has opened for us the gates of glory. We give you praise, God, for predestining us to be adopted as your children and to be made like your Son. And Father, we long for that day. We grow so weary of our sin. And when we aren't weary of our sin, O Lord, we face the struggle of pride and self-righteousness, thinking that we're doing okay. And so, Lord, we ask that you will help us, that your law would break us down, your gospel would lift us up and encourage us. And Father, we confess that we are often swayed back and forth between being greatly discouraged in our sin and being overly confident in our spiritual abilities. Well, Father, work in us. We do pray that you'd renew us, that you'd show us our sin and lead us evermore to our sweet Savior, Jesus Christ, and his righteousness. We pray that more and more you'd help us to fight against sin and to put on Christ, more and more to consecrate ourselves to you. Make us, Lord, after the image of our Savior. In his holy name we pray. Amen.